Thank you for downloading this podcast from Grace Church Manchester. To listen to more or to get involved with church life, visit www.gracechurchmanchester.net. I brought something with me today. It's great that my in-laws are actually here today, and I've had this opportunity to thank them for this heirloom. They very kindly gave us. It's been in the family for quite a few years, but today it's got its moment uh, in the sun. Now let me ask you a question. What do you want? What do you want? He wants the mattress. What do you really want? What's your deepest desire? What's your persistent longing? The thing you, you, you yearn for? Do you want to get married? Do you want to get rich? Do you want to get away? I knew that that would get to my wife. <laughs> From me. Do you want to get well? Now in our reading today, Jesus, we hear Jesus asking that very question. He finds a severely disabled man in a crowd full of broken people. The man has been disabled for 38 years. 38 years. A hopeless case by most standards. And Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? In fact, he even suggests the answer there in verse 6. Do you want to get well? And then he heals the man on the spot. No sooner is it said than it's done. Now, what does this show? Now, at least it shows this. The Lord Jesus Christ has power. He has the power to redeem hopeless situations that nobody else could touch. He has the power to turn around and to transform lives. He has the power to grant this man's deepest need and desire. But is that all? What about you and me? Can we just read this story and then draw a straight line from that to our lives? Can we expect that Jesus Christ is going to show up at some point and heal us or grant us our deepest desire? Now, if that's the takeaway from this passage, then we need to know how to access Jesus like that. Some people have suggested that if you just pray with enough faith, Jesus will show up in your life now and do things like this. But you know, it's not really that simple. Because Jesus Christ is not here in the flesh as he was for a few years in the first century. He's ascended. He's in heaven. And because these stories were not written down to function like advertisements. Advertisements. You know how adverts work. In an advert, a company shows you what their product can do for you. They display their car, or their vacuum cleaner, or their pair of jeans. And they say, if you pay your money and take your choice, you will get all the benefits associated with this car. Vacuum cleaner, pair of jeans. So with an advert, I can draw a straight line from that to me. If I obtain that car, I will receive those benefits. If I buy that pair of jeans, I really will look that good. <laughs> really. Not wearing skinny jeans. Now, these accounts of Jesus Christ don't work like adverts. They, don't, they are a little bit more sophisticated. The author of the book, John, actually says that these miracles that we have recorded are signs, like signposts. And signs give you information, and they point somewhere. 
They point somewhere else, not just to themselves. Signs show you a direction of travel. They show you where you need to head and how to get there. Signs show you where to go. Now, there are seven signs in the Gospel of John. The first one is when Jesus changed water into wine at a wedding in Cana. And it's a sign that he's the Lord of the wine, the creator God, come to earth bringing joy and gladness, transforming hopeless situations. That's the nature of his rule, this, this king, Jesus. It's a rule of joy and gladness. The second sign is the healing of an official's son. This boy had a fever and he's close to death. In his desperation, the dad traveled more than 20 miles to beg Jesus to come to his house. Please save my son. Please heal him. But Jesus didn't just go along with it. He calls the man to something else. He calls him to a deeper faith. Faith, not just that Jesus could heal, but that he was someone far, far greater. Someone you could trust with everything. Someone whose word could be completely relied upon. That sign showed us that seeing isn't believing. It showed us that believing in Jesus is really seeing. That sign called us to live by faith, not by sight. Now we're at the pool in chapter 5. Not the swimming pool. The pool of Bethesda near the Sheep Gate in Jerusalem. And here the Lord Jesus Christ does another miracle. But again, it's a sign. It's a signpost. It's pointing to something. Although by now the author has started to expect us to do our own counting. It's the third sign. So how does this sign, the healing at the pool, help us to believe in Jesus Christ? What does this story do? How does this story give us life in his name? Here's what it does. It reveals the power of Jesus. It reveals the person of Jesus. And it reveals the perspective of of Jesus, the power of Jesus, the person of Jesus, and the perspective of Jesus. So firstly, the power of Jesus. You know, this chapter five sets a really vivid scene. It's a scene of massive need and misery. There in Jerusalem, near a place called the Sheep Gate, is an area with a pool or two pools in it. And it's, it's got these stone pillars and covered colonnades, a covered area. It says there are five covered colonnades, which is basically saying it's a big area. This isn't just the, uh, the bike shed and the rain shelter or the bus stop. This is a big area with these pools, and it's an area that's full of misery. It's full of need, because it says there in verse 3, there's a great number of disabled people lying there. The blind, the lame, the paralyzed. The people who are on the margins of their society, the people who can't go into the temple and worship God, the people who have no social security and no benefits, and by the look of it, no family to look after them in many cases. They're there, lying there by the, these pools, under this covered area. And there in the midst of all this, these people is this one man who's been there, an invalid, for 38 years. 38 years. Some of you guys aren't even 38 years old. Imagine if you've been disabled, absolutely debilitated for that amount of time. This is a long-term, lingering, discouraging, depressing illness. And just imagine the impact that would have had on his mind and his heart and his spirit, on his humanity. He seems to have lost all hope. Why is he at the pool? 
Now, some have speculated that this was where the pilgrims would come to buy their sheep when they were on their way into the temple, because it's called the Sheep Gate, and that they may be in a good place to beg, because the pilgrims are all coming through. You could, you could ask for, for alms. But also, that there's a hint here in our Bible, in the footnote, that about a local legend. Uh, you may have noticed when Joshua was reading that the text goes from verse 3 to verse 5, without the usual verse 4 in the middle. Verse 3, here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. Verse 5, one that was there had been an invalid for 38 years. And there in the, in the footnote is this little verse that says, and it's a really small print, so I'll read it out. Some manuscripts include here, wholly or in part, paralyzed, and they waited for the moving of the waters. From time to time, an angel of the Lord would come down and stir up the waters. The first one into the pool after each such disturbance would be cured of whatever disease they had. Now that's not part of the original Bible text. It's a bit like a, a study Bible where somebody adds a comment to try and explain what's in it. Because there was a lo- local legend that when the waters moved, and it may have been that it had a spring as its source and sometimes it would bubble up, uh, like spa waters, that when those waters moved, there was a kind of belief that the first one into the water would get healed. So they're all there with this hope. Maybe I'll be the one that gets healed. So you can imagine what happened when the waters started bubbling. It'd be like the youth club trip to the swimming pool. Everyone's trying to get in first. But this verse is a later um, edition. It wasn't in the original text. So there's this man lingering at the pool. But even there, he is hopeless. He's hopeless. In Mark chapter 2, a similar man, a paralytic man is brought to Jesus by four friends and these friends carry him on his bed and they even go up on the roof of the house and they break through the roof and lower him down because they're so keen to get him to Jesus and but notice this guy what he says about himself verse 7 sir I have no one to help me into the pool he doesn't have any friends no one to help him so he is stuck his life is permanently on hold He's locked into hopelessness and perhaps self-pity. You see the way he responds. He's at the pool. He's clinging to this vain hope that something in the water might save him. But he's got no way of getting in. And then one day, a stranger walks across the courtyard and looks him in the eye and says, do you want to get well? There's no small talk with Jesus there's no, it's nice weather at the moment, isn't it? Oh, look at that pool over there. Could do with the clean. No, it's straight to business. Do you want to get well? And the man replies, the only way he knows how, by whinging. He's a professional moaner. Sir, I've got no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Hint, hint. Will you hang around and help me get to the water? You know, if you fancy sticking around, you might be able to help me. See, this man is thinking only in terms of this world and the world that he knows and and of the rules that he knows. But Jesus is the one we've seen so far in John's Gospel who's the one from heaven. He's bursting into our world with new life and new power. And he's having none of it. He's not interested in the pool. He just bypasses it. The idea of waiting around. And he simply speaks. Get up. Pick up your mat. And walk. You see, Jesus Christ doesn't need to rely on the water 
to do something special. He doesn't need to rely on creation because he's the creator. So he can repair and restore and heal his broken world. And he can do so just with a word. The same word that caused human bodies to be made in the first place at the dawn of creation now causes this man's body to be knit together and strengthened and fully functioning right there and then. And in an instant, he rises to his feet. And all those long years of waiting are wiped away in an instant, like cobwebs being swept away from an old window, letting the sunlight through. And he gets up, and he probably bounced up to his feet, and he rolls up his mat, and he he walks out the sheep gate, never to return. And Jesus says, take your mat with you. Never thought about why he says that? You know, is Jesus worried about litter? It's a sign that he's done with this place. I don't need this anymore. I'm not coming back. Take it home. It's also a sign that while he's en route, anyone who knows him can see. Hang on. He's, I, remember, I recognize that uh, Czech sponge mat. He used to lie by the... Isn't that the guy, that, you know, the one that used to moan a lot? It's him. He was there for 38 years. Was it? So having the mat with him is a sign to everyone that something dramatic has happened. And I think it's also Jesus throwing down the gauntlet. Because Jesus knows that it's Saturday, the Sabbath. And he knows that the Jewish establishment, the powers that be, are going to see this man walking around with his mat on the Sabbath, and that's going to put the fox among the chickens. And that's exactly what Jesus wants to do. He wants to provoke a controversy, a challenge, so that he can show who he really is. Now, we said earlier on that this is not just a miracle, it's a sign. So if this is a sign, what does it point to? It shows the power of Jesus Christ, his extraordinary power. It's power beyond that of anyone else. No one else could help this man. It's power exercised on behalf of the weak and the broken and the marginalized and the poor. And it is power that is exercised graciously. This man, as we will find out in a little while, did not deserve to be healed he didn't even ask. Jesus just came and reached into his life. The uh, French, uh, 16th century French theologian John Calvin writes these wonderful words. This sick man does what we nearly all do. He limits God's help to his own ideas. And he does not dare promise himself more than he conceives in his mind. But Jesus stretches forth his hand from hidden places and shows how far his goodness exceeds the narrowness of our faith. God may keep us in suspense, but though there seems no end to our protracted troubles, we ought always to believe that God is a wonderful deliverer who easily shatters every obstacle by his power. The power of Jesus. And this power is a sign. It's pointing to something really big. It's pointing yet to the fact that Jesus is God in the flesh, as John's gospel has been saying so far. But there's something actually much more specific than just proving that Jesus is God. In verses 24 to 29, which we didn't read, Jesus spells out the future. Verse 24, there on page 1069. Very truly, I tell you, he says, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, 
but has crossed over from death to life. Very truly, I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. See, there's a future program for humanity being outlined here. The dead will hear the voice of Jesus. They will rise to live or rise to be condemned. A new creation is coming in which his voice will speak and those who trust him will rise. Now the word used for rise there is the same verb, the same word used in verse 8. Get up, rise, take up your mat and go. So this episode by the pool is really a signpost to that future bigger reality. The renewal of this man's poor body and legs is a signpost to the renewal of all things. When the voice of Jesus will say, behold, I'm making all things new. When the old order of things will pass away and there'll be no more sorrow, mourning, pain or tears. When heaven will come to earth, when there will be a new creation. That's the hope of the Christian. That's the hope of the Bible. So the question is, do you want to be part of that future? This miracle is a sign saying that he has that kind of power because of who he is, because of who Jesus is. Because the second thing that this sign reveals is the person of Jesus, not just his power, but his person. And by that, I mean his identity who he is. Now, the moral police are out on their patrol and they see the man carrying his mat and they put in a call to the uh, Jewish establishment headquarters. Uh, it's Shalom here. I've got a former cripple carrying a mat on the Sabbath. What do you want us to do? Book him and bring him in. So they quickly bring the man in, still with his bed in his hands, and they point out that he is breaking the rules. Now, it's not actually 100% clear whose rules he's breaking. The Old Testament had insisted that Israelites kept the Sabbath day, Saturday, as a sacred holy day. They were not permitted to work on it. And working and resting generally means that you take a break from your normal occupation. A day of rest from all your work and worry. A joyful day to be with family, to worship God, to be in the community. But the later rabbis felt that more clarity was needed about what was actually included in the definition of work. So they started drawing up guidelines. And eventually they came up with 39 classes of work. And you can guess what happened. People, some people become sticklers for tradition, for the rules. And these rules are much more prescriptive than the Bible itself. And so this man, carrying his mat out of the... Um, sheep's gate and trying to get it home is breaking one of the guidelines which is that you shouldn't take an object from one place to another because that's part of working even though he's not a professional furniture mover <laughs> and the man interestingly reveals his true colors because what does he immediately do he immediately tries to blame Jesus <laughs> this, is, this is the extent of his gratitude verse 11 uh, the man who made me well said to me pick up your mat and walk not my problem tries to pass the buck immediately. But the problem is, he hasn't even had the wit or the courtesy to find out Jesus' name. It's, it's that bloke, uh, the one, in the, the Jewish guy in the courtyard. 
So it all starts to sound a bit lame. It's like the dog ate my homework. Really? Which dog? And these leaders are quite suspicious. So they say, well, who is this fellow? Verse 12. Who is this fellow? Great question. You know, that is the key question. The key question that we all have to answer. Who is this fellow? Who is this man? Jesus. Who is this person? And Jesus himself answers the question for us. Look with me again at verse 16. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Who is this fellow? According to Jesus, he's the one and only son, the unique son in a unique relationship to God the Father. He goes so far as to say that what God the Father does, I do. Therefore, he's claiming equality with God. You see that? What God does, I do. Now, these leaders, they see it straight away. Because Jesus is stepping into a well-known debate in Judaism. The Jews knew that the Sabbath was a holy day, and they fenced it around with all these protective guidelines. But then there's a theological question. What about God? Does God rest on the Sabbath? Does he keep the rules? And a, a moment's reflection revealed that God doesn't keep the Sabbath. God doesn't rest from his customary work on Saturday. God keeps sustaining the world. God keeps sent, making the sun rise, sending the rain, water the crops. He keeps judging the world. He keeps sustaining it. So they theologized, it must be right for God to break the Sabbath. After all, he's the creator. He's a being so much higher than us. The same rules don't quite apply to him and us. Now Jesus here is saying, I'm on the same page as the Father. <laughs> I've got the same job description. Whoa! See what he's saying? I do what the Father does. Now they see it straight away in verse 18. And this starts a whole section. Uh, the next five chapters are going to be all about resistance to Jesus. They've got a theocratic mindset, and you know that blasphemy carries the death penalty, as it does in some cultures in our world today. And although they're not in power, the Romans are in power, they will still do their level best to remove the blasphemer from the community. They want to kill him. So from this point onwards, they are determined to kill Jesus. See, they actually see something about Jesus Christ more clearly than many people do in our world. They see something very clearly, and it's this. Jesus is either mad bad or the son of God he's either mad bad or the son of God he's either crazy wicked or telling the truth he's either a lunatic a liar or the Lord and this has been put so well and so famously by C.S. Lewis it's been called C.S. Lewis's trilemma the trilemma so I want to read the quote that was first used on the radio during World War II uh, BBC radio Lewis says this, I am trying to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept him as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. 
A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg (laughs) or else he would be the devil. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up as a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human being. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. And Lewis concludes, It seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend. And consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. So let me ask you, who is he? What do you think? Have you made up your mind? Because friends, there's no bigger question for you to answer today. There's no bigger question. You have to come to terms with this. You have to make an answer Who is this fellow, this person? Now, my neighbours, let me give you an illustration. Some of my neighbours are really believers. They're true believers. They are committed. Some of them are actually members. What am I talking about? The Labour Party. They're members of the Labour Party. They're believers. They don't hide this fact. They're not ashamed. They invite people to join them. Last week, they invited our entire street to go and put leaflets through people's doors about the Labour Party and come and have tea and cake afterwards. They believe. What about me? Well, I kept saying, you know, I'm an agnostic. When it comes to politics, I'm an agnostic. I just don't know. I look at the options. I look at the candidates. I look at the parties and I see things that I like and things that I don't like in every party. I'm unsure. I'm an agnostic. My voting record looks like someone who's mentally imbalanced. (laughs) I'm an agnostic and in some ways you know that's a comfortable place to be. It's comfortable because being an agnostic protects me from having to make a decision. Being an agnostic politically makes it sound like I'm thinking about politics but it actually shields me from thinking too hard. And if I'm honest, my political agnosticism was laziness. But then Thursday came. Thursday came, and I had to vote. Because whoever gets into power will shape this nation. And I am responsible to cast my vote. I have to go there and and put a cross in a box. Who are you going to vote for? And the... Uh, Manchester Withington is a swing seat, was a swing seat, Liberal Democrat or Labour. So if you vote one way or the other, you you could influence the future of the country for the next five years. There are no other contenders, Labour or Liberal Democrat. So being an agnostic isn't really good enough, is it? You can only stay an agnostic for so long, you have to make your mind up. You have to make your mind up about who would be best in power. You can't sit on the fence forever when it comes time to vote. You can't sit on the fence forever with Jesus Christ. He is too important. Who do you want to be in charge, not just of this nation, of this world, of your life, of this universe? Yourself or the Lord Jesus? 
There's no bigger question for you today. You have to come to terms with it. Who is this fellow? Now, according to John's gospel, he is the Son of God, the one who came from heaven, full of grace and truth. He's the light of the world. He's the Lamb of God who takes away our sins. He's the Lord who invites you to come to him and have life in his name and promises you life in the future. And this is all the more important. This question is all the more important because of my third and final point, which is the perspective of Jesus. The perspective of Jesus is that he's the judge. There's a strange twist in our story. I was talking to Andrew, who ran over here earlier on and ran out again. He said, reading through John's gospel, all the time it gets weirder. You think you know what's coming, and then something weird happens every time. And here, something strange happens. You know, you think it's all over. It's like the 1966 World Cup final. They think it's all over. It is now. Because in verse 14, he comes back again. And he deliberately comes and finds this man again. Look at verse 14. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you're well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. What? According to Jesus, the conversation ain't over. Here's the man. He's alive and well and kicking, and he's there at the temple. And he's loving it. As a disabled person, he'd been excluded from temple worship all those years. You know, there were no blue badges, no special parking spaces at the temple. If you were disabled, you were excluded from worshipping God. So you're cut out of the community. And now he's back. He's loving it. He's experiencing the health. He's loving the discovery of his, his newfound legs. He's probably dancing a little jig. You know, he's loving it. He's probably bouncing up and down. Where is he? Oh, yeah, there he is. And then the stranger walks into his life again. Oh, he's back. And once again, the stranger says something unexpected. See, you're well now. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Now, that's a bit shocking, isn't it? Why didn't Jesus just leave it at the healing slip away into the crowd, an unsung hero, you know, secretly knowing he'd turn the man's life around, but going back to his apartment or to the bat cave or wherever heroes go. Why come back for afters? Why come back and make this eerie, uh, rather unsettling comment, stop sinning or something worse will happen to you? Evidently, to Jesus Christ, there's something worse than being disabled for 38 years. Evidently, to Jesus Christ, there's something more important than being healed physically. There's something more important than rescuing a person from isolation and hopelessness of 38 years. And perhaps this is hard for us to grasp because we don't have the perspective of Jesus. Here's his perspective. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. There's something worse than disability in this life. There's something worse than even being shut out and hopeless. The worst thing is this, dying in your sins. Dying in your sins as you are. With your own guilt and sin on your hands. That is much worse because you get to meet the judge of all mankind without a plea. And then you'll be judged on your own merits and they will not stand. 
That's why Jesus takes this move and he, he risks it and he goes after the guy again. He cares enough to come and warn him. Listen, I know you're happy about being heal, healed, but look, there's something more important than this. It's that you get right with God. It's that you stop your way of life that's sinful or something even worse will happen to you. You see, the Bible's perspective is a lot broader and longer and wider than ours. The Bible's perspective starts before time and it ends after history. We tend to th- measure things in rather short periods. The Bible gives us God's, a God's eye view of the world. And in that view, we, even though we think we're quite nice, are actually enemies of God, haters of God, and we are under his anger. Because we live in his world, but we put ourselves at the center. Let me give you an illustration, a story that I heard a few weeks ago about a man who owned a dog. And the man treated this dog absolutely abominably. Every time he walked past it, he'd give it a kick. He never fed it. If it was ill, he just ignored it. It was starving. He would stub out his cigarettes on the dog while he was watching TV. He maltreated and abused that dog in a shameful, horrible way. But the same man had an orchid, and he loved it. And so he watched over that orchid and took care of it every day. And he would clean its leaves with milk. And he made sure it had the right amount of humidity and the right amount of light and the right sort of soil and that it was positioned carefully so that the orchid was beautiful and flourished and looked good. Meanwhile, the dog was cowering in the corner. What kind of a man was he? He kept such good care of the orchid. But you would say... You looked after a a plant, but you neglected the care of a much higher being, a dog, who you abused cruelly. What kind of a man was he? On the one hand, he was a great man to the orchid. On the other hand, he was a wretch to the dog. Now, you and I are a bit like that. We're very good at treating certain people well, maybe members of our family. But when it comes to God, a much higher being... We ignore him and we treat him cruelly. So let me ask you, not how are you treating your wife or even your dog, but how do you treat the living God, the one who gives you everything you have? Is he at the center of your love, the center of your life, the center of your adoration? Are you loyal to him? Are you trying to stop sinning because all sin ultimately is against him? Have you turned away from that and followed Jesus Christ? Or are you like this man in the story? He wants benefits from Jesus and then he'll go his merry way. Because you notice what happens? Jesus says stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Do you see what happened in the very next verse? Verse 15. So he went away and told the leaders that it was Jesus who made him well. Stop sinning? Okay. He goes and, and it betrays him to the people who want to kill him. Now there's human nature at its most shocking. The church that I grew up in, there was a very old saint, an old man whose name was Matt Tyndall. Uh, not, same, not same spelling as us, different family. Matt Tyndall. And he had fought in World War I. And he lived to actually over a hundred, I believe. And he'd been in the trenches in World War I. And he'd been in there, and he was known as a Christian man. And there was another company of men in another trench who mocked him 
cruelly and mercilessly about his faith. And then word came that they were going to be shelled. And those men sent word to this Christian man. They said, please pray for us. We think we might be bombed. And so he did. And that night, although the bombs fell, those men were all spared. And every one of them was relieved and happy. And so later on, Matt Tyndall called them on his trench telephone or whatever it was. And they spoke to him. And every one of them was happy and relieved. And every one of them carried on mocking God just as they'd done before. It's possible for you to pray and plead with God to help you when your life goes wrong and then to carry on living just as you did before after a while. I'll never forget a conversation when I was in business. A colleague who I didn't know very well at all came and spoke to me over coffee and he said, my wife is on her fourth pregnancy, the other three have miscarried. And we were called into the hospital and it looked like she was going to lose the fourth baby. And he said, I'm not a religious man. I started praying. Oh God, if you're there, please would you save this baby? Not a fourth one. And then he said, I realized I don't give God the time of day. Why should he help me now? The lesson of this story is that Jesus Christ is powerful. It's, the lesson is about his person. He is the Son of God come to earth. And you know what? The lesson also is that he may help you when you call on him. He's that gracious. But rescue now is only for a time. There's something more important. There's something eternal. And it could be right around the corner. Judgment day is coming. It's time to put your cross in the box. You have to make your mind up. Who are you following? Have you seen the sign? Have you seen who Jesus is? Have you witnessed his power? Has the Bible spoken to you when you've been hearing it read? Then it's time to stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Nobody comes out of this story well. The man immediately betrays Jesus for his own comfort. The leaders overlook the miracle. They overlook the healing of the man uh, before their very eyes and they focus on their own rules and they want to crush Jesus because he's, he's a, a threat. Nobody comes out of this story well. But let me ask you, uh, friends, don't be like these people. Don't be like these people. See Jesus for who he is, his power, his person, his perspective and come to him while there's still time. If you're sitting on the fence, I hope you've heard what we when I said. You can be an agnostic for so long, but you can't be an agnostic forever. Put your cross in the right box. Trust him. Follow him. And he will receive you graciously. Let's pray. Do you want to get well? Sir, I have no one to help me. Get up. Pick up your mat and walk. Who is this fellow? My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you sent your son into this world and that you have given us a reliable word about him. You've given us the Bible in our own language. And as we read it, person of Jesus Christ steps off the pages and into the room we start to hear his voice so I pray now for anyone here who has heard your voice today and knows that they need to stop sinning
in case something worse happens to them. I pray that there will be one person here today who would cross over from death to life, from darkness to light, who would cross over and become a follower of Jesus Christ. Would you do that now for your great glory and for the glory of your Son, we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you for downloading this podcast from Grace Church Manchester. To listen to more or to get involved with church life, visit www.gracechurchmanchester.net.